This podcast is for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to From Crime to Crime. Hey, buddy. How's it going? Super. <laughs> super. Super. I was going to say superb, and I don't know. I, I forgot how to say it like midway, so I just, just kept it going. So I'm super. Okay. Well, that's good. Super. Duper. I should uh, switch it up on you one of these weeks and not start with, hey, buddy, how's it going? Well, it'd be also nice if we had something else to go off of. Every week we do this, and we don't think of how to bring this in until like we turn our mics on. So maybe that would be helpful, too. I know. We should start with like, no, that was a fleeting thought and it didn't form. We could start by singing every day. <laughs> do you want, do you want to have like a sing along? Oh, I want. You like to sing. I want to. Yes. So we will. Well, I don't think other people would love it <laughs> though, is the problem. They may turn the podcast off. So how about we just start with the episode this week? Let's get into it. Today's episode, we're going to be talking about Fawn Cox. Fawn Cox, huh? Yep. Fawn like a baby deer fawn? Yes, but like a 16-year-old girl fawn, because that's her name. All right. So this episode, we're going to go way back to July of 1989. Whew. It is way back. Mm-hmm. What was the number one song on the country pop charts in 1989? I don't ever check the pop charts, but the country charts, it was George Strait, What's Going On in Your World. Hey, there you go. That's a good one. Yeah, I thought so. Don't sing it. I don't know it to sing it, so don't worry. <laughs> if I did, I would have. <laughs> so Fawn Cox is a 16-year-old girl, and it's the summer before her junior year. She lives in Kansas City, Missouri with her parents, John and Beverly Cox. The family didn't live in what you would call the best part of town. They lived in kind of a rough, rundown area. They live in an old two-story, two-bedroom, one-bathroom house, and she has two younger sisters. So there's five of them. Okay. Fawn was described as a really good kid. She was close with her family. She was involved pretty heavily in her church. She had a lot of friends. She was described as outgoing. She didn't, like, date rough guys or hang out with a party crowd or a druggy crowd or anything like that. She was a good kid. And in July of 1989, she would just gotten her learner's permit, and she was super duper excited to get her driver's license. Most people are. Yeah. So she worked part-time at a local amusement park, and I'm sure because she was saving money because she was getting her license, and I've also heard that she was saving money to buy her class ring. Which she probably shouldn't. Like, it's a good idea at the time, but in all reality, when the hell are you going to wear your class ring again from high school? Oh, I know. I mean, I have one, and it's locked up somewhere. Yeah, I have one, too. I don't even think mine's locked up somewhere. It's just, like, in a jewelry box. Yeah. That and my letterman's jacket. Like, I don't know what to do with either of these things now. Yeah. Mine's hanging in my closet with all my prom dresses. <laughs> what do you do with those? You know, I think a cool idea to do for those would actually be to do some uh, paintballing. And like, like a, for a bachelorette party, like all the prom dresses that like you don't have or you're not using anymore that you're never going to use again. Just go out with the girls and go paintballing oh. and just destroy them. I think that'd be kind of cool. That's actually not a bad idea. That's kind of fun. Yeah, I know. I should do that with all my bridesmaids dresses too that I have in my guest bedroom closet. You should. And you should wear them all at once. And that way, if you get out, you can just take that one off and go back in. Yeah. I have like a David's bridal clearance rack in my guest closet. From my wedding? No, just from all the weddings I've been in. I mean, the dress I wore to your wedding's in there too, yeah. But all the other bridesmaids' dresses that I've worn are also in there. 
well, maybe we should put a paintball game together. Yeah, that's a good idea. Anyway, so Fawn works at the local amusement park. So on the night of July 25th, she worked a shift at this amusement park and she got off around 10 o'clock. Which is pretty late, but it's summertime. That makes sense. Yeah, but it's late, so her mom goes to pick her up instead of, like, taking the bus or catching a ride or anything. Her mom and one of her younger sisters came to pick her up from work. When they get home, Fawn goes upstairs to her room, which is on the second story, and she pretty much goes to bed right away because she's tired, she's been at work all day, and she has to go to work again the next morning. Her parents' bedroom was on the first floor, and her younger sister decided to sleep on the couch that night because they had an old window air conditioner in their bedroom downstairs, and it was July in Kansas City, so it was hot. Sounds disgusting. (laughs) It sounds just (laughs) muggy. I'm sure it was gross. So you Usually the girls all slept upstairs. The upstairs was divided into like two rooms, even though it was one room. It had like a makeshift divider into two rooms. So the two younger girls were on one side and Fawn's room was on the other side. So when they go to bed that night, her other sister was at an overnight babysitting job. So she wasn't there at all. So Fawn goes upstairs to her room with a fan in her bedroom window and her mom and her dad and her sister all go to bed downstairs where it's a little bit cooler because the air conditioner. The next morning, Fawn's mom, Beverly, and her little sister hear Fawn's alarm clock going off, but she's not shutting it off. So they go upstairs to wake her up so she isn't late for work because obviously her alarm's not waking her up. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And she was lying on her bed and she had a t-shirt and a bathing suit top on, probably from what she wore the night before. She probably just fell asleep in it. But she also had a nightgown around her neck and she was nude from the waist down. When her sister shook her to wake her up, they quickly realized that she was dead. I don't like any of this. Yeah. During her autopsy, the medical examiner found semen, and that concluded that she'd been sexually assaulted, and her cause of death was strangulation. So she had been murdered in her own bed in the middle of the night while her parents and her little sister were all in the same house. And nobody heard anything. I mean... How quick this person must have gotten in and gotten out, you know, that's that's what's the scary part, honestly, is they had obviously a mapped out plan of what to do, where to go Mm -hmm. and how to do it. I, I don't like when that kind of stuff happens. That's scary stuff. Well, and then the other thing is the air conditioner. So apparently it was an old and kind of loud air conditioner. So it may have drowned out some noise, you know, and they were asleep. So. I mean, some people sleep harder than other people, you know. Yeah. Do we was it central air or was it like air conditioning in each windows? Because that's a difference. No, no, no. It was one window air conditioner in the parents' bedroom. Oh, man. Okay. The only other suspicious thing that anybody heard that night that was ever mentioned in any of the reports was the family dog was reportedly anxious and barking that night, but she was also extremely pregnant. Oh. So they kind of chalked it up to her being pregnant, like she was just- uncomfortable yeah super uncomfortable i didn't see that coming because i couldn't imagine being pregnant with one baby in july in kansas city without ac yeah let alone a litter of puppies yeah no kidding like i'm sure that dog was very uncomfortable absolutely i didn't i didn't think about the dog being pregnant too this might be our first pregnant dog case yeah well the dog didn't do it so well i know the dog didn't do it but (laughs) (laughs) so the detective started investigating right away But Fawn didn't have any, like, enemies or anything. She was a 16-year-old, well-liked kid. Yeah. (laughs) What enemies would she have had? I mean, 
besides the typical like oh, yeah. school ones, I guess. But like most people don't have enemies. Not enough that... to do something like this. No, no, this is a, this is insane. She wasn't known to date like you know shit guys or anything like that. Like she didn't have any violent ex boyfriends or anything. They did determine that burglary could have been a motive because the investigators noted a few electronic items missing. Like a Nintendo, a boombox, and a stereo. Had to be the original Nintendo, huh? 89, yeah, oh, probably. Yeah. Maybe Duck Hunt was on there. <laughs> yep, and a boombox. That's so 89. How do you even steal a boombox? Those things are huge. On your shoulder, obviously. Uh, yeah, obviously. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> Where else? <laughs> yeah, that's wild. So none of the neighbors saw anyone go in or out of the Cox house that night, but one witness said that they saw a teenager with a pillowcase full of stuff running between some houses. So maybe related, maybe not. They don't really know. Really bad timing if it's not related. Right. <laughs> there was also no sign of a fight or a struggle in her room, which could be another reason why her parents didn't hear anything. Well, right. But I mean, are you super surprised by that? Because I'm not. I would think no. this happened in her bed. She was asleep, you know. Kind yes. of case closed, right? Yeah, I don't think she had a chance. Yeah, exactly. There was also no sign of forced entry at either of the doors to the home. So like the front door or the back door. So the only conclusion that the detectives could come up with was that the killer entered through Fawn's second story bedroom window. Man. I mean, it's not impossible, but it's not it's not easy that way. Well, and it's scary as fuck to think about. Yeah. Like, you almost feel safer on the second story, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. So it's like to think that that's how somebody made their way in. It's like, oh my gosh. And there was a truck and an old utility trailer, like, parked near the back porch of the house. And the roof from the back porch went right up under Fawn's window. So the killer could have easily climbed up on that truck or the trailer, and then onto the roof of the patio, and then just literally walked right up to Fawn's window. That's, I don't like that. I don't like that yeah. at all. Also doesn't seem like anything that you would just like randomly like, oh, score. Yeah. Like, right? it seems like somebody would have to know that that's how you get up on that roof. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that kind of goes back to what we were talking about before. Like, somebody knew what they were doing to make this easy. Yeah. So the police concluded that the killer was probably somebody who knew Fawn, or at least the Cox family in general, because like we said, the upstairs was divided into two rooms, one for Fawn and the other one for her sister. So the killer might have known that her younger sister was away that night or that the other sister sometimes slept downstairs. Like the killer might have known some things about this family. Do we know had they had anybody like at the house working or anything like that recently? Do we know any of that stuff? No, none of that was ever mentioned uh, in any of the reports. Okay. They also thought that the killer might have gotten just extremely lucky, but that would be that is, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, look what just fell into my lap. Yeah. I doesn't seem likely. But they also may have gotten lucky that the AC was loud enough that nobody heard anything or again, they knew that the AC was loud. Yeah. How close was the parents' bedroom to hers? Like, were they on the opposite sides of the of the floor or next to each other? Do we, do we know that? No. And the house actually burned down a couple of years after this happened, oh. and nothing's been built in its place. So it's just an empty lot full of trash now when you look at it on Google Maps. So, like, we don't know a lot about the actual house. Right. I tried looking it up. All the houses around it are two-bedroom, one-bathroom, like 900 square feet thousand square feet they're pretty small they were all built in 1900 every house on that street was built in 1900 oh, so i'm geez. assuming yeah so i'm assuming theirs was a similar 
style to all the other yeah, ones. Yeah, that would make sense. Although the 1800s, yeah. man, I wouldn't be surprised if they were just like all different. You know, the cookie cutter ones are the ones that we see now. Back then, they may have all been different. So who knows? It doesn't really matter. This was in 1900. Oh, I thought you said the 1800s. No, it was built in 1900. Oh, Okay, well, yeah. it's it's still the same. Nah, because then you're getting into when they had catalog houses, where you could literally buy your house from a Sears catalog and then build it. They would send you a kit. In 1900? Yeah. Haven't you ever been to the Nixon Library? Yeah, yeah, I've been there a few times. That little house in the back where he was born, the house that he was born in, it, it's a kit house. Oh. They bought it from a Sears and Roebuck catalog or whatever. Oh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know that. I do have a Sears and Roebuck wagon yeah yeah not the same thing pretty close in the same size though (laughs) yeah probably they were tiny so i mean i don't know that that's what these houses were but that's what it kind of seemed sure so because they are very similar like all the houses on the street are very similar so i don't know the layout of the house but either way the house wasn't very big is the point of that (laughs) right you'd expect them to know yeah so this person either got extremely lucky that the AC was that loud or they knew the AC was that loud. Probably knew. I mean, it's all lining up towards they knew. Yeah. So pretty quickly, the police honed in on a group of teenagers that had been rumored to be in possession of some of the stolen items from Fawn's room. Like some people turned them in as like having the Nintendo and Oh, no way. Things. They knew that that fast? Yeah, and they knew some of the things that really only somebody that had been in the house would know, I guess. I heard some reports that they threw something in a bush that they meant to, like, grab on their way out, and then they didn't grab it, and so it was still there. Mm. But I couldn't say, I couldn't find that in more than one place, so I don't want to say that as fact. But they arrested 18-year-old Christopher Yates, 18-year-old Timothy Roberts, and 16-year-old Leonard Crucis. So teenagers. Yeah, absolutely. Were, did these guys go to the same high school as the girls or any connection like that that they could find? One of them's sister went to the same high school as Fawn and one of them may have attended the same high school as Fawn, but there was nothing that said that they knew each other. Okay. So they're all arrested and charged with murder, rape, and burglary, and they're held for months in the county jail. So they did have the items, I'm assuming. Like, it wasn't just a yeah. rumor that they I had mean, them. They, they found them, it sounds like. They must have found something that led them to b- arrest them. Yeah. Because, I mean, they arrested them, and they served months in jail. So by December of 89, Timothy Roberts was indicted on murder, rape, sodomy, and burglary charges. And the other two teenagers' charges were downgraded to just burglary, and they were released from jail. Why? How? Like, did they have any physical evidence to charge anybody? Well, they had DNA. Okay. From from the sexual assault. From on her? Yeah. Oh. That's how they knew she was sexually assaulted. Remember in the beginning I said they found semen in the autopsy? Yeah, I sure do. I remember that. Yeah. But 89 DNA was not the same thing as it is now. (laughs) Right. It was more icky. It really wasn't. (laughs) Yeah. It was kind of gross. Don't touch it. Well, and it was kind of like even the actual testing of the DNA was not as specific as it is now. Like they didn't use it a lot in 89 yet to like convict people or confirm any. They used it more to rule people out. Oh. Yeah. It wasn't very honed in yet. Either way, by December, they charged Timothy Roberts, the one kid with the rape and the murder and all that, and they downgraded the other kid's charges. So it seemed like they burglarized the home, and then the police think that the one teenager was the one who either stayed behind and did this or, you know, whatever. It was one guy. They had one DNA sample. 
any I did the other kids like say it wasn't us, it was him or any do we know anything like that? No. We don't know because one was a minor, so they couldn't even talk to him until his birthday. Oh. Like they held him in jail for months and they couldn't even talk to him until he turned 17. That's legal, huh? I don't know. I don't know. How, like from the story that I saw, I don't know that it is legal, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was 89, so I, you know, that seems suspicious. Yeah. So it seems like they're honing in on this one Timothy Roberts. But the results of the DNA test when they took his DNA were not really conclusive because DNA wasn't very good back then. So it wasn't enough to rule him out, but it was not enough to take him to trial for. You know what I mean? Like, it didn't say specifically that it was him either. It just wasn't enough to rule him out. Right. Okay. So by April of 1990... After like eight months, they had to drop the charges against him because they didn't have enough to take him to trial. Okay. Well, yeah. is this a good thing because he didn't do it? Are we going to go back to that? Or like, no, this guy, he- Oh, yeah, we'll find oh, okay. out. I mean, they have DNA, right. so. The the one thing, though, is the authorities were still like pretty sure these guys knew more than they were saying. They're like, either there's another person and you guys haven't told us about that person or one of you is the guy. You know what I mean? Like, they kind of really still focused on these these three teenagers the west kansas three yeah but they just still didn't have enough to charge them so they had to let it go and it goes on like this for years like everybody just kind of thinks that it's those guys and they got away with it and the family does fundraisers to up the reward to see if people will talk and nothing happens the the case eventually goes cold and it stays that way for years until well dna technology advanced and the codis database was created Eventually, they would take the DNA sample from Fawn's case and upload it into the CODIS system, but there's no match to Fawn's killer. So her killer's not in CODIS. And, of course, the police at the time, their idea was like, well, the killer's either in prison or dead because killers don't kill once and then stop. Well, that's what we did think, right? Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, back then, they definitely thought that. But now, with genetic genealogy, we know that yep. that happens a lot more than you think. Totally. Often. People just kill somebody. And, and get away with it. Yeah. Probably not much anymore. But almost every one of these cases that's been solved with genetic genealogy, besides like the Golden State Killer because he was a serial killer, right. but even he stopped. You know, he hadn't had a murder since 86 or whatever it was. So they do stop if they want to. Yeah. Well, and sometimes they do one and that's it. Yeah. A lot of times. That's what I'm saying. Every single one of these killers that has been identified through genetic genealogy has been like a one-off. Which I think makes a ton of sense, right? Like- Nobody can tell me that anyone has been so mad at somebody that you're like, oh, I wish I could kill them and then <laughs> goes too far. Yeah, but a lot of these aren't people they know. So a lot of them They're are just random like, sexual assaults and murders. Hmm. Men are awful. They're almost all sexual assaults and murders. <laughs> Men are just awful. Yeah. So in the early 2000s, three, the three teenagers that had been arrested and spent months in jail and, you know, the ones that the cops thought, you know, pretty sure did yeah, it. Yeah, definitely. Their DNA was retested against the DNA from the crime scene. And now that it's, you know, in the 2000s, the DNA is a lot more precise. Completely ruled them out. Not one of them matched the DNA from the crime scene. That is crazy. But what about the evidence before? What do you mean? The semen. What about it? Didn't that match to either of these guys? When they ran the DNA in the 80s, it was inconclusive because the DNA wasn't very good back then. Oh. DNA testing, the 
technology. So it was inconclusive when they ran it in the 80s. That's why they had to drop the charges. But they were like pretty sure these were the guys. So then in the 2000s, when DNA was better, they retested their DNA and it exonerated them. Oh. They were not the the killer. God, I... I hate this kind of stuff. I really do. This is this kind of stuff is why I'm so against the death penalty. Yeah. Oh my gosh, how awful. Yeah, but don't feel too bad for them. They had something to do with something. Well, because they had the Nintendo, they had the right? Shit from the burglary. Okay, there we go. Yeah, so they had like, the Nintendo. See, and now I don't know that for sure because that's what everything says, and everything said they knew stuff about the burglary, but it's never been proven. So I don't know. It's they've never. The police have never said that for sure. I don't know what goes on with those guys. I don't know how they got in that predicament. It's probably not good how they got into it. Yeah, but no kidding. By the 2000s, they're out of it because the DNA exonerated them. So they spent months in jail for a murder that they did not commit. Yeah, which thankfully was only months and not years because how often do we see yeah. it just being ridiculous? But okay, so it's not them. So did police reopen this investigation then and go back to looking at all this or did they just kind of go, Well, we the know. investigation was never closed. Oh, okay. So, and it didn't heat back up either when that happened. I mean, nothing happened. The the killer wasn't in CODIS. Nothing happened. Then by 2018, genetic genealogy was thrust into the limelight because of the Golden State Killer case. And her family put up a billboard and offered a $15,000 reward for new info. And they also started pressuring the Kansas City police to use the new DNA technology to solve Fawn's case. Like, they were pushing them to use genetic genealogy to solve her case. Because they had the killer's profile, they just didn't have the killer. Right. So hopefully they could easily have the killer's profile. Yeah, but the police pushed back. And they said it was too expensive, blah, blah, blah. Why do they always do this? Like, yeah, well, because I'm sure it, it was expensive. I mean, it is expensive. It's not free. You know, it costs money. But the family did fundraisers and raised the money and wanted to pay for it. And the police said, no, that's not fair. Like, what about all the other families of victims that don't have the money to pay for the testing? Like, we can't just choose yours because you're going to pay for it. I see both sides. I get what they're saying, yeah. but also... Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the technology is there to solve it, and the money's there to solve it, but they still couldn't. So that's that's frustrating. I'm sure that's got to be the worst. They can't have the evidence and take it elsewhere, like on their own thing, no. right? No. Because Jared with the wet vac, man, he would solve this very quickly. Yeah, but they don't even need the wet vac. They have the DNA profile. Oh, yeah. They just need to run genetic genealogy on it. You have to remember, too, this is 2019, and they just solved the Golden State Killer case, and they're solving cases left and right. It's a new technology, and at the time, there I mean, even now, but at the time, there was only, like, a lab or two that did this. So they were busy, too. It's not like they were like, please give us work. It's really only Parabon and Othram. You know, they're, like, the two main ones, and they've only got so many people that work there and can do this. So Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, good point. Yeah, so it takes a while. They had to wait a couple of more years, even after the technology was there. But in 2020, the FBI launched Operation Legend in Kansas City. It was named after a little boy that was murdered, whose name was Legend. And the main goal of this 
operation was to provide federal resources to local police departments to solve violent crimes because the crime rates were skyrocketing in 2020. Like Kansas City's homicide rate was like through the roof, higher than it ever been. Was this because everything was closed for the pandemic and then nobody had anything else to do but kill each other? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. And I didn't really look up to see if it got any better, but they launched this operation, the FBI, to like help local police departments with funding and resources so that they could solve violent crimes and put some of these people behind bars to try to lower the crime rate. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. So when this happened, then the police department got the federal funding that they needed to run the genealogy testing on Fawn's case. So by November of 2020, investigative genealogy pointed detectives to a man named Donald Lee Cox Jr. Oh, what? Same last name? Yeah. Any relation? Yes. Damn it. He was her first cousin. Oh, okay. I didn't see it going that way. Yeah. So he was her dad's brother's son. Oh, geez. And, and... The families were close. I mean, they grew up in the same area. They spent a lot of time together. It's not like he was unknown to the. I mean, he was a close family member. Yeah, obviously. He obviously knew the lay of the land yeah. and how the house worked and all that kind of stuff, too. Yeah. So after the genealogy was done and the shock kind of wore off, the detectives had to prove that he was the DNA match, just like they always do. When, when the genetic genealogy is ran, it's a genealogist that says, based on the family tree, I think it's this guy. Right. Well, then the police still have to prove it's that guy. You know, they have to go out and do the legwork to prove that it actually, that he had the, you know, the DNA, the motive, the opportunity, all that kind of stuff. So they go to try to prove that it was Donald, you know, they have to get his DNA to prove that it's a, the genetic genealogist says, I think it's this guy. And then the cops have to go get a sample of his DNA right. to prove that it's that guy. So this is kind of a problem, though, because when they go to get his DNA, they discovered that he died of a drug overdose in July of 2006. Oh, man. They had a ton of time, too. And just. Yeah. 17 years after Fawn was murdered. Yeah. 14 years before they identified him, but 17 years after she was murdered. Dude, she she had been dead longer than she'd been alive at that point. Mm-hmm. But his death was suspicious in nature, so an autopsy was performed, and the medical examiner took blood samples oh, from Oh, wow. And even though his death was eventually ruled an overdose, the blood samples were never destroyed. Is that common? I don't know. But the medical examiner had vials of his blood from his autopsy. Well, geez. 14 years later. That's crazy. Wh- yeah, I don't know if that's common or not. I don't know if that was a oversight and they just like never cleaned out their fridge, their evidence room. I don't I don't know where they keep that, but like Probably just in the fridge. But thank God they didn't throw it away. Yeah, no kidding. Destroy it. I don't know what they do with it. Maybe that's why they didn't. Maybe they didn't know what to do with it either. They're like, what do we flush it? <laughs> Drink it. What do we do? Yeah. So his blood was tested against the samples from the crime scene and it was a perfect match. Uh, of course it was. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So the authorities were able to inform the Cox family that they had finally after 31 years of torture and torment that this family went through, they identified her killer. But it was not good news because it was a member of their own family. Yeah, that's really bad. Were her parents still alive for all of this to come down through? Yes. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Oof. Do we kn- And so we- were his parents. What? Oh, wow. That's what I was going to ask next. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, 
So everybody knows. Oh my gosh, how awful. And he had a criminal record. Like, it wasn't like he was an angel, but he was never suspected of this. It's not like he was a suspect. You know, he had a criminal record that went back to when he was 19. Like, nothing super major, like thefts and drug shit and stuff. But he was out on parole when he murdered Fawn. Oh my god. He was 21 at the time of her murder. Wow. And do we, we have no idea why, right? Just because he no, could? I mean, yeah. Oh, I, those are the worst. I mean, we'll never know. He's gone. I mean, He's yeah. passed away. Of course. So. And it's not really clear if he ever knew those other three teenagers. Like, did they all do this together? Like, it's never been, like, he was significantly older. I mean, he was 21 and the one kid was 16. Right. The other two kids were 18. But it's like, what kind of 21-year-olds hanging out with 16-year-olds? Well, the only thing I was thinking is maybe, like, he took that stuff and then tried selling it to them. But you would think that- It could have. You would think the other boys would be- Yeah, like, we didn't do this. Her cousin sold it to us, you know? Right. The only other, I mean, if there was no connection, like, if they didn't all four go in there together and they burglarized and he did this, the only other really thing that I could think of is that they burglarized that house and left. And then he came, like... Like the perfect storm. By coincidence, it happened on the same night. My goodness, I don't like that. That's the only thing I could think of. Well, but I mean, I if they didn't know each other and they weren't connected, that's the only thing that makes sense, you know? Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. Or those kids were never involved in the burglary at all, and it was, you know, all these reports of them having the stolen items are not true. That's another option. Then they really (laughs) are the West Kansas City Three. Yeah, that's true. Although I think this is an East Kansas City. Well, they weren't called the West Memphis Three. I couldn't call, or they weren't called the the East Memphis Three. I couldn't call them the East. <laughs> I know. Yeah. So that is the shocking case of Fawn Cox, which is really sad because, like, now the family has answers that they've been wanting for years, but you don't want to know those. Yeah, it's not the I answer mean, they wanted. Yeah. I mean, yikes! I could well, imagine. Yeah, that is. Oh my gosh. And. For him to be gone, that's the other thing, is they can't even confront him and be like, what in the actual fuck, dude? Well, exactly. Like, I, it sounds like he just did this because he had an urge or something. You know, maybe he was on drugs and I don't know. I, this was easy. I, I don't know, man, but I don't like any of this. Yeah. Pretty wild, though. I mean, genetic wild. genealogy is amazing. And that's why we wanted to pick a case this week that was that highlighted using that. genetic genealogy. Yeah. Yeah, we we think this is really important technology and we have a platform to talk about it, so we should. Yeah, because secrets don't stay buried anymore. That's for sure. And snitches get stitches. Yeah. Well, they don't we're not going to need stitch. We're not going to need stitches anymore. God damn it. We're not going <laughs> to need snitches anymore. Like genetic genealogy, I mean, we're we're done with crime. You're I feel gonna like snitch on yourself. Of, yeah, I feel like we're at the beginning of no more crime. You think no more crime altogether? Well, no more violent crime. Oh, I think we're still gonna have lots of it, but I do think it's gonna get solved much faster. Yeah. Well, yeah, obviously. But I'm just saying, like, you're not gonna get away with shit now. So. No. There are satellites all over the place watching us. There's cameras everywhere that you don't see. Everything is on video. The one thing, though, that I will say that I love the most, I think, about genetic genealogy, obviously in this case, it didn't happen because he's already dead. But my absolute favorite thing is when they catch these like 70, 65, 70 year old men like who think they got away with this forever. And it's like, nah. Oh, like like Golden State. I mean, he was in his 80s or is in his 80s, I think. Yeah, I think he was 70 something when they caught him though 
Oh, okay. But yeah, I and everybody's like, oh, they're a poor old man now. It's like, oh, no, fuck them. I'm super, like, good. I hope jail sucks real bad when you have arthritis. Well, it's like, and they still catch a Nazi from time to time and they charge him. It's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's kind of necessary, honestly. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I don't feel bad for him just because he's old. He's still a fucking psychopath. He was young when uh, he decided it was okay to kill 7 million people, so... Well, and that's what I'm saying. Like, I, that's my favorite thing about genetic genealogy is, like, these guys always think they got away with this. And then it's like, nope. Well, it's, yeah, especially, you know, dating this far back or even further, like, walking away scot-free. Cool, got away with it. And then it's like, oh, I still have to answer for what I did when I was... 21 or whatever the case is. I love that. I do too. Plus it brings so much hope to to cold cases. Like if you have a family member that was murdered or, you know, something in the 70s, 60s, 80s, you know, it's like 10 years ago it would have been like, oh my God, it's been cold for 30 years. They're never going to yeah. catch the guy. Now it's like, hey, guess what? They're probably going to catch that guy. It's not even like maybe they're going to catch that guy. It's like they're probably going to get him. Yeah. Like if there's DNA, they're probably going to get him. I like that. I love that. I like that a lot. So, All right. So what is our missing persons case for this week? So our missing person this week is David Dwayne Abbott. He's a six foot tall white male, 200 to 220 pounds, and he would be 50 years old now. He went missing in June of 2016 from Fort Oglethorpe, Georgia. Namus says that the circumstances of his disappearance were that he had a paranoid schizophrenic episode and left in his truck at 10 p.m. His truck was found two days later, 60 miles from his house in Athens, Tennessee. He was last seen disoriented walking around the road. Some distinct physical features of David is that he had fingernails chewed down to the skin on the top of his fingers. He had a severe scar on his right shoulder. He also had scars on his eyebrow, forearm, and knee. And he had the name Gina and a tribal wedding band tattooed on his left ring finger. All right. Well, we'll post those pictures on social media for everyone to see. Yeah. All right. Well, I will talk to you later and I'll see you next week, guys. All right. Love you. Love you too. Bye. Bye. This podcast has been a production of Orange Halo Media LLC, hosted by Grant and Erica. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. To chat with us, go to From Crime to Crime on Instagram, From Crime to Crime on TikTok, From Crime the Number Two Crime on Twitter. Or you can visit our website at fromcrime2crime.com. See you next Wednesday.